uh, this event has been uh, organized by the Children's Committee along with the Pan American Center. Uh, I'd like to say just a few words before we start, even though our, our panel is all <laughs> ready to go. But I, I would like to uh, put this event, which we have every year, uh, in a kind of a context of, uh, of the, uh, the activities of Penn. Uh, most of us know uh, the Penn American Center and uh, Penn internationally as a group that uh, concerns itself greatly with the freedom to write, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, serious aspects of making sure that there is uh, freedom for writers, with trying to make sure that there is freedom for writers. In uh, more recent years, I think we've added a, uh, uh, a wonderful area, which is not uh, just uh, the freedom to write, but uh, concerning ourselves with readers. The freedom to read, the knowledge of how to read, and uh, not at uh, just the most uh, rudimentary level of literacy, but of a sort of expanding uh, literacy that goes with the freedom to read, so that we will become, uh, we can contribute as writers, as an organization of writers, to an ever-expanding uh, and uh, uh, pleasurable, but also uh, intelligent literacy. And to this end, uh, they, uh, Penn has uh, organized uh, readers and writers groups, uh, which work with people all over the country in small groups uh, uh, who are reading at different levels and writers uh, visit with these groups. Also, uh, I think that we have had an increasing uh, panoply of writers events uh, that uh, have uh, added to the, um, might say, the uh, <laughs> kind of general feeling of living in a, in a literate city uh, in the past few years in New York. And uh, this event, which we arrange yearly, is uh, definitely one of them. And we welcome you all to it. Uh, there are many uh, librarians in the audience, and there are editors, and there are writers, and there is, in general, the community uh, that is uh, uh, the support, and the lovers, and the deliverers, and the users of children's literature. And of course, we all know how much a general literacy uh, grows out of books read and loved and used and even uh, chewed on <laughs> in early childhood and in later childhood, all through childhood. So we are very happy that you are here and now we can start. Uh, Elizabeth Levy will introduce uh, the panel a little bit. Uh, we we want to thank Nini So for so graciously stepping in for Wendy Lamb. Any of you who are expecting to see Wendy Lamb, Nini was thinking of coming in But really, I thanks also to Wendy because, I mean, in a sense, went out and got us what I would think of as the Jason Giambi to pinch hit. Uh, if the Mets were hitting, I would have picked one of ours. <laughs> Jeannie So is the Vice President and Editorial Director of Athenaeum Books for Young Readers, an imprint of, this is only children's publishing, we have to go through this, an imprint of Simon & Schuster's Children Publishing Group. 
She began her publishing career as an Oscar Diasco Fellow at Bantam Books in 1987. She joined Harper Trophy as an editor and became vice president and editorial director of the imprint. During her 10 years at Harper, she brought such editors as Karen Cushman, Gary Spinelli, Jack Antos, Catherine Patterson to the house, and she was my editor. <laughs> she also published and launched Trophy's first best-selling children's hardcover series, Lemony Snicket's The Series of Unfortunate Events. She joined Athenaeum in 2000. In her first year at Athenaeum, she has published such books as The Misfits by James Howe, America by E.R. E. R. Frank, who was one of our panelists last year, and Virginia U. Ewers Wolfs, winner of the 2001 National Book Award. And Athenaeum is currently publishing three of our panelists today, Elaine Konisberg, Carla Kushkin, and Mary Pope Osborne. So now I'd like to hand it over to Jeannie, and let's thank her very much again. I told Wendy um, that, uh, that I, when she called me, oh, can you, can you all hear me now? Now can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, I told Wendy, uh, maybe I should just pretend that I'm you and see if anybody notices. And she said, well, I would love to be you. And I said, well, I would love to be you, actually. That's one of my own imprints. So, so anyway, um, but, uh, but I am um, really honored and thrilled to, um, to be on this panel and moderating um, such a distinguished group of writers, and I'm going to write as an illustrator, and I'm going to tell you um, a little bit about them right now, okay? Um, Elaine E.L. Konigsberg, um, whom we know as Elaine, um, is author of Outstanding Novels and Picture Books, has twice won the Newbery Medal. Um, for the View from Saturday in 1997, and from the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler um, in 1968, which uh, I have to tell you is also celebrating its 35th anniversary, and we're doing, in fact, um, I'm gonna be a publisher for a minute and show you the fabulous new 35th anniversary <laughs> edition. Um, anyway, um, and uh, as well as a Newbery Honor in that same year, um, as we all know, for Jennifer Hecate, William McKinley, and me, Elizabeth, Her most recent book um, is Silent to the Bone, which got five-star reviews. And so we are very happy to have her on our panel. Um, our next distinguished panelist is Mary Pope Osborne. She has written an extensive and varied body of award-winning books, um, including collections of Greek myths, folk tales, histories, and the well-loved Magic Treehouse series. I'm going to show you. I'm going to do a little show and tell, um, as well as again, behaving as a publisher, um, The Brave Little Seamstress for Athenaeum, um, and Kate and the Beanstalk. And she was a two-term president of the Authors Guild. Uh, Brian Collier is a writer and artist who combines watercolor and collage in his eye-catching books, including Uptown, which he wrote, um, Martin's Big Words, The Life of Martin Luther King Jr., written by Doreen Rappaport, won the Caldecott Honor um, in 2001 and the Coretta Scott King Honor um, in 2001. And here are some of Brian's books. Here is beautiful Martin's Big Words, which if you have not yet seen, I urge you to take a look at it. Um, Russell Friedman uh, is a writer in the area of fact, biography, and history. His range is great. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Life of Discovery, 
the Wright brothers, how they invented the airplane, Martha Graham, A Dancer's Life, and Lincoln, a photobiography, um, the Newbery Medal winners in 
That's why B equals MC squared. Um, I've written many kinds of books, uh, retellings, picture books, novels, and um, I think in biographies, the hardest book I ever wrote was my first Magic Treehouse book. And it looks like the simplest. Uh, I had done all trade books for 10 or 12 years, published about 20 books, and Random House asked me to consider doing a series that would be sold in a mass market way, paperback. So my first Im impression was that this would be a really easy task. And, and then it got harder. Because what happened was they asked for me to write for s seven-year-olds. And I had never written for younger grades before. And then they said it can only be 54 pages long. And then I had meanwhile decided that if I did invest myself in a series, it would have to have a lot of things that I was interested in doing. And I made a list of those things, and they were time travel, science, adventure, mystery, magic, and meaningful relationships. I could do the research because I had done a lot of research before, and I was skilled at plotting, and I was skilled at you know working on character and letting it evolve and make discovery. But I had no idea how to do all of that in 54 pages. It took an entire year and seven complete drafts trying to get the first book, even just draft it so that it would work. I don't know what kept me going. I many times wanted to quit. I thought, this is absurd. I wasn't cut out for this. And then uh, I, this is a, a, a great story about editors. An editor came in who saw what I was attempting, and she just started saying, not this, not this, not this, 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 this. And I was so obsessed at this point in such an eddy of trying to make it work that I just plowed ahead. And finally, we got a first draft of a, of a book that seemed like it would s suit all these things that I'd set out to do. It was an incredible struggle. But I stayed so obsessed with the struggle. And each obstacle that presented itself, there was a way to work around it eventually. And I, I first, I did eight books just trying so hard to keep this ship afloat and, and juggle all these particulars. And then something else entered the struggle, which was having an audience of children who were really getting devoted to the series. And I was going to schools and I was getting letters and I took on a, a lot of responsibility and concern for my audience and took on the concern that I had a chance to really say something more meaningful maybe than I'd set out to say. So then I said, how can I do this without being didactic? How can I talk about the environment or different cultures? And then, by then, along the lines of what Elaine was saying, character was really taking over. I knew these kids in this book, these books after eight so well that I would pose a question to them and give them a situation, and they began to dig deeper and come up with more meaningful conclusions than I myself could reach. So there, through character and through struggle with my characters, I began to achieve new layers to the series. I've just finished the 27th one in the series, and I'm still having a wonderful time. And I think that I still give myself uh, impossible puzzles to work out. And uh, for instance, I just did one on Thanksgiving, and my first draft was filled with everything. You know, there were dozens of pilgrim characters and Wampanoag Indians and, and the characters made every kind of dish on the planet and 
fished and hunted and did everything. And I turned it into my editor, who's still my editor after 27 books, Mallory Lore, at random. And she said, as usual, you got to take three-fourths of this out of the book. Let's focus on when they're hot and sweaty in front of the hearth fire and their relationship with Priscilla. And um, why don't you do something funny when they're fishing for eels? I mean, it's not quite that simple, but it it contracts down and contracts down until I'm so focused on the moments and I discover in those moments the reality, but it, it just happens to take a tremendous amount of rewriting. One obstacle I faced in this book was how to deal with the Wampanoag. When I went on websites, I, I was so horrified because there was so much rulemaking about how now to present the Indians, and they said, don't call us Indians and don't call us Native Americans don't refer to us as braves and don't and the list of do's and don'ts on the website one of the websites was so daunting and and then they said that thanksgiving was a day of mourning for them not a day of celebration and i just got all twisted into a pretzel thinking of how to achieve writing a simple 54 page book for sev second year uh, graders without offending a, a, a nation of people so character again solved the problem by staying with Jack and Annie and giving them this relationship with Priscilla, suddenly Priscilla's problems took over the book. She just lost her mother, just lost her father, just lost her brother, Priscilla Alden, and there was so much pain there that Jack and Annie took on the role of comforting her and making her laugh, to my surprise, to the surprise of the editor as well. That happened in the process of dealing with the obstacle of how to deal with the Wapanoag, who more now are in the background um, and not a central issue that I had to resolve after 400 years of history. So it's amazing how you can take on the troubles and then find these, these kind of simple human solutions through the process. So I think what I do with Magic Treehouse, I try to do with all books that I'm working on. The panel gave me a great opportunity to answer the question, what do I struggle for in my writing? Because I had never verbalized it. And in doing the, the verbalization I came up with, I try to discover simple truths inherent in complex situations, while at the same time juggle volumes of information and plot and character demands with a simple yet elegant and vibrant vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I can't say that I'm very often successful, but when I am, it is so satisfying that I'm ready now to do the 28th book. So, <laughs> thanks. Okay. Um, Brian. Well, um, naturally, uh, I don't really consider myself a, a writer. I mean, I, I was given the opportunity to write about, to write um, Uptown and it was a total surprise. I, um, I went in to um, uh, Henry Hope with my portfolio, and they said, oh, we want you to write it too. So, um, and it was just, I was totally taken aback. But some of the things that I struggle with are, I, I suppose they are the same themes and the same ideas of um, that which is authentic or, or that how to connect um, they're the same. They're the same struggles visually, also. Um, 
before it all, before the books and the publishing and all this stuff started for me, um, I was a painter, and, and I, I still paint. And 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 what I had found is is that the stories that were emanating or coming out of um, the paintings sort of mirror my childhood or parts of my life, and and it fits so perfectly with children's books. And and in my quest to get a book deal, and one of the promises that I had made to myself was, if I ever get a chance to actually do this, and I, it took seven years to do this, to finally get a deal, um, what is it that I talk about? What is it that I do um, to sort of convey these things? And I found that my biggest obstacle was me. How do I get out of the way, you know? Um, how how is it that everything in the world is set up to pro prohibit you from actually creating? Everything is force fed. You're told what style and 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 what taste is, and you you fed all these images in the world, and and TV and all music, all parts of your life, even literature. You're fed it. Um, how do you submerge yourself underwater to listen to your own inner voice? What is that voice? And um, one of the things that I realized, okay, or I come to realize, is that that inner voice is the same voice in everyone and every child. And but we don't listen all the time. We we struggle with with that. That's a it's an inner struggle. And and every time that we do, we seems like it always works out for some reason. And I have a story to tell you about a. Um, a trip that I did in, in Connecticut, I was speaking with five-year-olds, you know, and, and how do you talk to 35-year-olds uh, and keep their attention for more than five seconds? But anyway, I, asked, I, I end up, ended up asking them, uh, asking them, well, what do you need to have, can you hear me, can everybody hear me? What do you need to have to make a children's book? And of course, most of them named the basic things like, um, crayons or a story or a child or this this and that the obvious things that you need a good story um, but one little five-year-old stood up and said well you need purpose <laughs> <laughs> and you know of, uh, yeah of course I almost cried in front of her you know <laughs> and 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 it just it hit home and it cut through all the, the things that we go through of, of how to make the best book, you know, or how to make the best image. And we always skip over that, that essential inner voice and that, that, center, that center that's in all of us, you know. And, and, and then, you know, after you get over the calisthenics of the structures of books and, and like the 32-page children's book and all those technical things, the, I think the only struggle that we go through is is how to get out of the way again, you know? How do we get to that place, that quiet place, or that chaotic place that that is that is kept from us all day long, and and that's through child having our own children or paying the bills, just day to day living, you know? Everything is is set up for us not to get there as artists, you know. Um, and if you get there, you won't stay there long, you know. Um, 
So part of this whole struggle and, and finding that authenticity and, and that which connects is an obvious thing. It's, it's a thing that's, that we skip over. And it's a marvelous thing when we get there. It's a marvelous place. You know that. You can recognize that space. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, a, it's weighty and heavy and scary sometimes. The truth, the finding the truth is, is something that is awesomely amazing to me. And, and the funny thing about it, when the child stood up and said, well, you need purpose, I knew she was right there. She was one of those children that you look at and you know she is right there in the middle of that which we're trying to get to. And, and that's what I find myself in awe of when I look at, when I go and speak with children and, and we, we talk about it. And, and that's what I go through um, when I'm doing the artwork. The, the last book that I just finished was a huge book of prayers for children uh, written by um, um, Marion Wright Edelman. It's 96 pages of, of just prayers, no running theme at all. It was just prayers that sort of spoke to many aspects that one would find themselves in. The anxiety, the loneliness, the, the joys, the ups and the downs of just living. And the conclusion that I came to was, well, well how do I wrap my heart and my, my mind around this concept to, to sort of have some cohesiveness and it was so large that it wasn't possible for me. So basically what I did, I looked within into my own experiences of living and found that, that life is, is like you receive a puzzle every moment of your life, a piece of a puzzle. And this thing fits together and you don't know what it means. Like I didn't know why I was an artist until the girl told me I needed purpose. That was a piece, a question that I carried around for 20 years and it got answered 20 years later from a five-year-old. So moments of your life is like a piece of that puzzle and you don't know where it fits yet until it's time to come up and it has a perfect fit and it fits with such precision that it, it, you should be amazed by it. And that's, these are all these things that are running through my mind and through my heart when I'm doing the books. It's never the book. It's never that piece of art that I'm making. It's always, it has something that's, that's bigger and so much more alive and vibrant. And, and that's what I, I revel in and that's, what I, that's where I find the most joy through this struggle, you know. Um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased and, I'm, and I'm, I'm blessed um, to be here, you know, in this. And that's what I carry for every book. You know, I don't, I'm trying to wrap this up. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I thank you for inviting me, and um, I'll, I'll give it up now.
facts in pursuit of the truth. Of course, fiction and nonfiction share one essential goal in common, and that is to engage the reader emotionally, to create a world that the reader can enter into and believe in and experience as if the reader is actually there. It doesn't matter whether you're writing a novel or a biography or a book for adults or a book for kids. The purpose, the goal, is always the same. It is to create a compelling and convincing world that the reader will leave only with the greatest reluctance. Now, if you're writing nonfiction, you have to accomplish this to the extent that you can accomplish it without straying from the narrow path of documented evidence. You have to stick to the facts. And instead of using your imagination to invent characters, events, and places, you have to use your imagination to mold the facts at your disposal into a narrative framework that will carry the reader along. You have to use your imagination to find and to employ the kind of vivid detail, the anecdotes, the examples, the actual quotations that give life to a subject, that help illuminate a subject. Abraham Lincoln signing all those last-minute pardons during the Civil War and a friend saying he is as tender-hearted as a girl. Lincoln wearing carpet slippers when he greeted the diplomats at the White House, calling his wife mother at receptions, mending his gold-rimmed spectacles with a string, carrying a $5 Confederate bill in his wallet, that sort of thing. I'm currently working on a book about the Bill of Rights, which I have found very difficult and very challenging because it's difficult to humanize the concepts that are embedded in the Bill of Rights and to show how and why the Bill of Rights is a living presence in our everyday lives. Most of us, most Americans take the Bill of Rights for granted, but how many people can actually mention the rights that the Bill of Rights was written to protect? In order to help my readers relate to this topic, in order to make it interesting, I've used several different, I am using several different strategies. One is to describe in the most gruesome detail, in the most horrible, bloody detail, the horrors, the abuses that led to the Bill of Rights in the first place. Torturing a person in order to extract a confession, crushing the thumbs, stretching someone on a rack until his bones break, and then 
uh, executing a person uh, who dared to criticize the government. They called it a seditious libel. It was a capital offense, and lots of people were executed for it. Uh, locking a person in a dungeon and throwing away the key without ever uh, uh, preferring charges against them. Those are all uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, those are all abuses that the Bill of Rights uh, was written to rectify. Uh, I'm also trying to uh, describe in some detail a number of landmark uh, cases that involve kids, uh, that have involved students. Uh, for example, uh, the Jehovah's Witness children who were expelled from school um, for refusing to salute the American flag because uh, they felt it was against their religion. Or the um, junior high school students in uh, Iowa who were expelled from school for wearing uh, black armbands uh, to school in order to uh, protest the Vietnam War. Or the uh, seventh grader in Oregon who uh, a star football player who was kicked off the team for refusing to submit to random drug testing, which uh, he felt uh, violated, <coughs> violated his personal uh, privacy. Those are all uh, Bill of Rights issues, and they're all issues that have uh, involved kids and have gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, what I always try to remember when I'm working on a book is that uh, I am uh, trying to tell a story. And it is the story that keeps the reader turning the pages, uh, turning the pages in order to find out what happened next in the past. Uh, I, always, uh, I also try to remember that uh, a book, a nonfiction book, can be perfectly accurate but untrue. And finally, just one word about the uh, subject we're supposed to be addressing. What do we struggle with? <laughs> I thought about it and I realized that what I always struggle for is writing my next sentence. struggle as being a struggle with adversity, struggle for life. I work very hard. I think we all do, probably. And I work to get the right word, to get things right, to transfer from my mind an idea, an emotion, image, to paper, to a child's mind, to your mind, whoever the child may be. Um, it's a little like photography, which goes from positive to negative to positive. I go from me to paper to you. And I want to be heard the way I hear in my head and be seen as I'm illustrating the way I see it in my head, which isn't possible because my own limitations often get in the way. Now that's, I guess, enough of that. But the, the negative, the, the part that I would say makes it hardest for me, always
except in verse, when I'm writing verse, that comes quite easily. Sort of bumpity, bumpity, bumpity verse. When I'm writing poetry and, and working against that metronome, which I was born with, that sits somewhere in my head, um, then I have to break rhythms. I have to try and extend lines. I've described to myself and to some others, I think, in the past, what generally happens to me on a project. And this is, as I say, excluding short verse. But even a poem, this can happen. I picture myself being in a lovely, welcoming wood of thoughts. Beautiful day. Maybe as cool as today, maybe a little warmer, so that all you have to do is wear your sweater unbuttoned, going down this wonderful mossy path, tiny little flowers, itsy bitsy little birds, but not Disneyland, you know, just nice little birds. <laughs> and the sun is filtering through the leaves, and it's all so lovely. And I'm going along, and if I could whistle, I would be whistling, but I whistle like my mother sort of <laughs> I won't do so I hum, but I'm happy as a lark. Going along on this project and suddenly in the middle of this lovely, lovely path is a mountain of ice. And I have to get over that mountain of ice. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it's there. I thought I knew when I started out where I was going, but there is this insurmountable or somewhat insurmountable problem that presents itself. And I have to get over it in order to get to the end of my poem or my story or my essay or whatever the hell it is I'm working on. That's the hardest thing I face and I think I face it with almost everything I do. With a book like The Philharmonic Gets Dressed, I wanted to open it quietly and build like music. And that was what gave me the problem, which I eventually solved. I eventually get over that icy part. And I don't think it's by taking off my shoes, and I don't think it's by putting on crampons, but I get there somehow. screw up the joke. So you have to find 
the right way of saying what you want to say. All right, I'm going to read this to you the way it's printed, and then it's just one word change. A frog's dream is a green dream. His bed is a stone pool bed. The water warbles. The water flows around his rubbery, rubbery toes. While a jewel fly skims his froglet nose, and the dream flings green in his head. Okay, there's a word there. Water warbles, the water flows around his rubbery, webbery toes while a jewel fly skims his frog elephant nose and the dream flings green in his head. That gives you the right number of syllables. It flows much better. And I like it, frog elephant. It's a new word. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> She writes, she has a big damned metronome inside her. <laughs> that's true. That's true. She does. Um, well, what do you think? Or what do you think everybody is talking about? I'm going to pose a question to you. To the audience. I feel like an English teacher. You see a theme. something interesting um, in listening to um, Mary and Brian particularly, but also to Russell, um, talking about uh, the ways in which um, you have to, you struggle, but then you have to let go of it somehow and let the book take over and let the characters and the story and what in, a, in an interesting way is already there It isn't that it's true, it's that it sounds like it's true. You feel that it's true, you believe that it's true. And that's the lie that we're all perpetrating, always trying very hard to perpetrate. Sincerity for me has very little to do with it, I think. I just am interested in getting it to be the way I want it to be. If that seems sincere, then great. But I, I think of that as being more like being nice when you shake hands. I think, I think you can fake sincerity, but you can't fake authenticity. Mm -hmm. Right. Authenticity. 
Mitchell some of it. I think beauty is inevitable. There's something when you see a beautiful painting, when you read um, some beautiful lines of poetry, or you read a beautiful passage of prose, there's something inevitable about it. It's almost like mathematics to me. You know? like it, it, it's like it's out there, and then the artist discovered it. And I think that um, the wonderful things about uh, about children's books is that authenticity can come in the strangest forms, like Frog and Toad. You know, you can have an Arnold Lobel story that is so authentic and so real and touches your heart so deeply that um, it, it would stand up against any great character in fiction, human character. somewhat cynical, and you have to reach back, and I think, Brian, you were talking about that, too. Right. That inner, that inner child that sometimes we ignore, and, and you know, we, we often, uh, I guess, we, we talk about that. We talk about that, that voice, that inner voice uh, that, that speaks to us. Our, we, sometimes we may call it our conscious. We may call it many things. And and it, and it speaks to us louder and screams at us at many times, and sometimes we're there, we're in line with it, and sometimes we're just not, but because of the obvious things that we see in front of us, that that rock or that tree that's in front of us, that says that that's the tree, but your voice, your inner voice may say it's something else, and and, and where's your faith? Where do you believe? What do you believe that is? So, I. I think that to speak to authenticity is is to speak to that voice, you know, whatever it is, because mine, my truth is different, maybe different from yours, but there's a common thread that we will have, you know, whether you hear it in the inflection or whether you hear it in the actual thing that, whether you agree with it or not, you, you will come to the conclusion that that's a possibility. That's the truth, and I can and and I can see a kinship in it. I think Carla. Oh, excuse me. Yes, I was just going to comment that I think that Carla being a poet made the most beautiful metaphor for connecting when she said positive into negative into positive. Very brief, <laughs> but very excellent metaphor for the other thing that I think we strive for. Can I put a, a parenthesis in here, which is that I once wanted to do a cartoon for the New Yorker of E.M. Forster in batting practice, <laughs> only connected. <laughs> 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 I just wonder if there's a, a difference between literal truth and emotional truth.
difference between accuracy and truth. I've long believed that. I always point to Williamsburg. I've gotten a bad letter from the president of Williamsburg, but I always say that Williamsburg, Virginia is accurate but not true. And I think that I think that the difference between emotional truth and factual truth is a difference between accuracy and truth. That's a great question, and it doesn't work with every editor. The, you do have experiences where you say, no, I think we're on a different wavelength. But in this case, um, we're on the same wavelength, and we're both working to the same end. I, I compare it sometimes to everybody's around uh, the table on a committee, from the art director to the editor to the author, and we've got a disinterested thing going on with this piece of work, and what's true resonates and I can't say what the formula is to know what that is but you know it that's another kind of sense that's going on and you get excited about it and you're daunted I'm always discouraged and I think I cannot do it this time I've lost the touch or I I don't know how to rise to this occasion but that energy will even push me through to trying to find this meeting ground with the editors uh, opinion. And then there are times when I say, no, I prefer it this way. I mean, it goes back and forth and back and forth. It's, it's a very dynamic relationship. And I prefer an editor who gets involved like that than somebody who just says, fine, you know, change three words. Because I think there's always a another layer to get down to. And then I often find that the editor snatches it back before I start to really mess it up. That they say, okay, now don't change anything. I'm going to keep it like this now. So it's, it's very delicate, and, and, and a lot of people who haven't published books have no idea of the complexity of that relationship, I think. And uh, I respect it very much. But would, would you all say that you know when, I mean, when you, when you get response from an editor, um, an editor tells you uh, this particular passage isn't working, Sometimes you think the editor is 
wrong. Sometimes they're probably are wrong. And particularly with poetry. Nobody knows how to edit poetry very well. And, uh, but every so often, I think each of us probably has at least one experience that's quite wonderful with an editor who knew what they were doing and what the work required. And for me, the best kind of editor then is almost line for line. Well, Carl, I think you said somebody knows how poetry is written. Mm -hmm. Edited. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of what Gertrude Stein said, that uh, nobody knows how writing is written, and most <laughs> especially the writers. <laughs> Also think that um, you have you 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 don't intellectualize it. Um, two days ago, I, I couldn't have told you th th what I struggle for, but on a subconscious level, you are because otherwise, how would you be discerning about a good day's work or a bad day's work? There's you have a criteria, you just haven't bothered, and and you can't put it in front of your desk and, and meet it. Yeah.
this make sense, that there is truth, whether it's really true or not, that there is truth in what you've done. And you feel that. And, and the other comment I would like to make has to do with when you draw, and you're drawing very well, you're not intellectualizing at all. And I know plenty of artists who listen to the radio to really remove a kind of thinking from the process because something else has taken over. And I think it happens when you write too, even though it's harder because you're dealing with words and words are what we ex communicate with. But nonetheless, particularly maybe again with poetry, that you have to let something else take over and that's what yeah. Brian all of us in one way or another are saying. There's, there's a famous quotation from Einstein, again. <laughs> uh, he said that um, the, my imagination has been more powerful than positive knowledge. Have any of you read Wittgenstein's poker? They had that argument with Wittgenstein. Yeah. Jack Kerouac, can we? Could I, could I say something to that? <laughs> I think success or accolades or whatever it is, is a funny, funny, slippery slope. Um, I, I've been um, involved with books for four years and, and three of the books have been, award, uh, have been awarded awards. Um, but it, when the next book has so many different challenges that it doesn't matter, you know, it never, it never really mattered to me. I mean, I mean, of course, I was um, when I found out what what it really mean, meant to have um, a Ezra Jack Keats Award and a and a Caldecott and a Coretta Scott King Award. I didn't coming into it. I didn't I didn't know the, what those ramifications were, 
And after um, repeating some of that, um, I did, but it still just, it never really mattered because the next project that comes up is as if you're out there by yourself again with no, no protection to, to, to deal with these, these themes and, and, and to spin this web to make this, this, this thing come alive and be in that place. The struggle is always the same. The, uh, the, the distractions are always there to fight against. Um, and, and you do everything, it feels like you do everything in your power and, and, and you feel daunted, like she said, you know, you feel this, can you, can you pull it off? Can you do it again, you know? And, and, and somehow when you've, you finally get out of the way and you, you let every, all these things go, like if you have a laundry to do, do laundry and get it out of the way <laughs> and then go work, you know? Instead of working and thinking about, oh, well, I got laundry to do, or I have to go to the bank. Do, when you let all this stuff go, and, and get get down to it. And and whenever that happens or however that happens is your process. Um, the success doesn't even come into play or that which is considered success. It has no space, it has no relevance because that child or that reader deserves the absolute best honesty and the best thing that you have. They deserve it, you know, it's their right to have it, you know, and, and you're wasting your time if you're not expressing that, so. <laughs> the same thing happens in writing. You find yourself expressing yourself in a certain way and you don't want to be repetitive. But I think the most difficult part of experience, and maybe subheading under that success, is keeping it simple. I think we, we accrete dialogue, we accrete descriptions, metaphors, language, only be only write a first novel once and I sometimes wish you could write a first novel 20 times. <laughs> I like the simple and it's hard to keep it simple as you, as you get more experience. Yes, back there.
Um, theme, what does theme mean? <laughs> I'm not, not sure. Uh, you mean a conclusion already in mind? Yeah, I think definitely. We have reasons. I don't, um, I don't think you know what your theme is uh, when you start out. You might have a question, you know, a, a, a primary question, but I don't know that you have the answer until you've worked through the process of the book. And I, I think that when you write for fiction, write fiction for children or write for children, the theme always has to ride in the backseat. Um, I did not know until I had published nine novels and an Englishman, David, did an exegesis on my work, and he said that my great theme was identity, self-identity. And I, at the time, I was working on a collection of four short stories that I had done, five short stories, I had done over a period of years. And when I was writing the uh, flap cover that your publisher always asks you to write a summary of your book, and they use it for flap I found out that all those stories written years apart were joined by a single theme, you know, who am I, what makes me the same as everyone else, what makes me different from everyone else, and I think that's the basic question of childhood. Good one. 
wonderful writers, but it's a hell of a way to... Um, and how can you reach a truth as you know it if you're using not only content, you're using reports? <coughs> I don't think that the, their uh, purpose is to reach truth necessarily. It's to write a compelling historical narrative and entertainment uh, that sticks more or less down to having other people do your research. You cannot, uh, that eventually, uh, inevitably will lead to trouble. And kids would stay for it. <laughs> yes, it's a very bad, very bad example. Well, there is a lot of misinformation in secondary sources, and there's even more misinformation in primary sources. Uh, eyewitness accounts are notoriously unreliable. If 10 people witness an event, if they're standing right there on the scene, they will report 10 different versions of it. Um, it's a, a myth to think that when you're writing history or nonfiction, that it's, it's quote, accurate. It can't be. It's one view of what may have happened. That's why you're imposing your own uh, uh, values on it, <clears throat> your own sense of uh, uh, selectivity, what should be included, what should not. But any sources you're using, uh, a memoir is self-serving. An eyewitness account uh, could, uh, some, it could be somebody who had too much to drink that day and yet be the only uh, account existing. There is no such thing as a a completely uh, objective, objectivity is a, uh, it doesn't exist. So. It's very liberating when you uh, realize <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, very denigrating, the term. An informational book is the telephone book. Uh, right? <laughs> um, a, a successful nonfiction book is a piece of literature. It, uh, it creates a world. It inhabits the world with uh, events, with characters. It pulls the reader into the world. Its purpose is not to convey information. Uh, that's a side issue, it may convey information. Its purpose is to uh, provide the um, uh, reader 
memorable reading experience, first of all, and uh, perhaps uh, convey some values, uh, some sense of what the life is really like. I don't think that you can call that information unless you're writing a book about mosquitoes, then maybe that is an informational book. But uh, I think that the Seibert Award, is it Seibert or Seibert? It's unfortunate that they picked that uh, designation uh, because it's a put Diary of Anne Frank, an informational book? Well, well, with uh, Martin's big words, it, it's it's funny being the illustrator, and and you take the um, the words solely on what they do to you. I mean, I mean I know I knew all, you know, all the sound bites on Dr. King. You know, the, the I have a dream speech and and everything that was posed to me growing up and in school about Dr. King. But I knew there had there had to be something else. I had to consider one every um aspect well, uh, as I could, uh, of the people that were around him, and and I and I basically I just put myself in that position. Um, what would I do? So I sort of filtered some of the decisions that were made and some of the things that he had done um, through um, my own reality. You know, what is what is courage? These themes. What 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 is courage, and what does it really mean? And what does it mean for? Uh, African-American in the 50s and 60s who, one, well-educated, um, had one of the best occupations that you could have for that time in, in terms of the community, be the pastor of your own church. Um, that, to have that, that prestige and that power and then say, you know what, I'm going to give it up and what may happen is I may lose my life for this. This, this facing that kind of reality and then saying, well, somewhere I'm, I'm gonna find the courage and pray for the courage to actually do this, you know. He had to, he had, he had to come to this conclusion. And so some of these things that I, that I, I reasoned that he did um, inspired me on one level, scared me on the other. And then I had to figure out, well, how can I tell this story? So the only thing that, that sort of popped in my mind, and it, and it came directly out of the collage, the thinking about the collages, the church windows. Um, the windows acted, acted as the metaphor for all the different colors representing all the different races coming together to make one society. So the story of, uh, of Dr. King's life sort of played out through these windows for me these stained glass windows. Um, and then what is a window, you know, looking in, looking out, all these things, reflecting light, reflecting ideas, all these things sort of, sort of rose up out of just a simple window. And my struggle and my, my job is what, to find that thing. What is, where is it? Where is, what is it that can tell this story? And it's, for me, normally it's just something very small that's been overlooked. 
and it may take me um, 20 passes, 20 times reading it, 30 times reading it to find this, this needle that's in this haystack. And, and, and then I bring it to the editor. And, and if, the edit, my, if my editor can come up with something better and we can both reason that well, there may be a better way to, to tell it, then, then we'll go with that. But, it, but if, if what I brought in is it, then that's the one. And, and, and that's what I sort of follow, and that's how I gauge myself in storytelling, visually. You know, let's find the best way, the truth. And if you can come up with something better, then I'll, roll, I'll, I'll back up off of my idea, <laughs> and we'll go with it. But if you can't, then I'm, I'm on, I'm gone. <laughs> you know, and, and that's it. Yeah. Well, I have to think about it with Magic Treehouse because it's so specifically age appropriate. And I also have to think about it because there's so many kids writing to me and I get very, if I think too much about it, I can't, I'd get paralyzed. So I just have to do it for um, j just myself. And then the, the kid audience is sort of um, in the background and they play it part, but it's sort of a low rumble and then ultimately that noise gets louder and louder, but if I let it get too loud, if I go to too many schools and get too much school reaction, um, it's, it's overwhelming. So I, I just come back to you know one or two children in my mind, but I, I get, have to get very age specific about those kids. <laughs> in the Philharmonic Kids Drift, I use a lot of facts that basically are made up. So there are, it says at one point, 47 men sit down to put on their pants and 43 stand up. And kids will say to me, how do you know that? <laughs> and I say, because I made it up. It's my book. <laughs> Start with water. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think water would be a good place to start. <laughs> Tell them 
tell them why it keeps you clean and, and, <laughs> and I did and everything came about. I mean, you cannot start with water without talking about um, how it cannot be compressed and then you talk about pressure and then, and then how do they measure pressure or then you get into the scientific method and that has been the most valuable advice be specific, and I always try to be. I specific with regard to place, specific with regard to children, and and just today I was speaking to Jeannie about a new book title. It's going. I had I had submitted the title as the Outlaws of Scholar Place, and I said to Jeannie, "Don't you think it will be better to be the Outlaws of 19th Schuyler Place?" And we agreed it would be. <laughs> and and. Um, and so I don't write for a fifth grade or a fourth grade, but I have a granddaughter who's in fourth grade and I write for her. Or when my own children were growing up, I wrote for them. So in, in that sense, I am aware. But in Miss Pratt's sense, I'm not. Miss Pratt, isn't that a wonderful name? <laughs> <laughs> she was a head person. <laughs> head person. Well, I think that uh, visually, um, um, the, the, my art normally it just stays the same. It doesn't it doesn't quite change. Um, and, and in terms of my approach and and my aesthetic, um, it just it just I just feel it, I've just come to know that children are so sophisticated that and 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 then I don't get caught up in the word sophistication. I think simplicity sort of speaks more and. To, to that notion to me than anything else. Um, but no, the, um, I don't quite, I don't change anything. I just, I just do it and, and let the, the, the wonderful words sort of lead me. And then I find uh, uh, reasons and why and how to connect those things, those ideas. Mary, in your other books, would you say that you think about your audience? I mean, you, you said specifically. No. No, I, I mean, I've uh, never. That's why it's so unusual right. to think about them. Right. Yeah. Well, I, what I found interesting about your talk in particular um, was the fact that it seemed to me that you were, when you were caught up in thinking about your audience and thinking about the writing to this particular age group of these particular pages, somehow it stopped you up. And yeah. That's when you got into character that you that's right. So the key to that was making a seven and eight year old character. And then they talked to the audience and I got inside them. Mm -hmm. yeah, I just realized that. Thank you. <laughs> Also, I think that um, because sometimes manuscripts come to me and I 
the only ones that'll really stand out and, and, and they just jump off the table are the ones with an original voice. And I think that once you can really find voice, it will lead you down the right path. I found that the voice will just just take you somewhere you didn't expect. I think um, I think we are. We have one more question. I think John Paul. One more. We think. Um, <laughs> Eeny, meeny, miny, <laughs> um, this lady. Okay. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. These were my friends. <laughs> <laughs>